Today's episode of the Greatest People You've Never Met podcast is brought to you by the Visual Identity Vault. The Visual Identity Vault is the official merchandise supplier for the greatest people you've never met. You can pick up the basics like t-shirts, hoodies, to headwear, and premium wear. The Visual Identity Vault is a full-service decorated apparel and marketing business located in my hometown of Fairmont, Minnesota. Shipping is included in all pricing, so we make it simple to order, pay, will produce, and ship. TVIV, a proud sponsor of the GPY and M Pod. All right, welcome in to another episode of The Greatest People You've Never Met. Joining me today is a new friend, Mr. Jeff King. Jeff, thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. So actually, this is the very first time Jeff and I are interacting and meeting. Uh, uh, Brian Porter, who you all have heard on a prior episode, hooked us up. And Jeff and Brian were very close. And uh, I think it was not long after I walked out of doing this with Porter. And Porter's like, you got to have Jeff King on. And so I said, all right, sounds good. And we lined it up. So thank you so much for spending the time with me today. I appreciate it. Yeah, not a problem. Mr. Porter is a character. Yeah, that's uh that's a that's a good way to put it for sure. So for the listeners who don't know you, could you do me a favor and just give an introduction of yourself? Sure. Let's see, uh fifty seven year old, recent uh transferee from SoCal here to a uh, beautiful Arizona. I have a wife of uh thirty one years and three sons, twenty six, uh twenty four and twenty. Two of them live here in Arizona. One of them still in college at SMU in Dallas. I am a uh, sales executive with a uh, billion-dollar company that's headquartered in uh, Denmark. Uh, we sell uh, floor cleaning machines. That's really fun to talk about when you go to a party. What do you sell? <laughs> floor cleaning machines. I love it. Um, uh, so uh, you also, I mean, part of the reason that really perked me when Porter was introducing me to you is... Um, Big in, in Little League athletics, Little League uh, baseball, if I'm correct, right? Uh, tell me a little bit about your time with that. Obviously, you got three boys, and that's probably a big driver, but what was the big force in, in getting into that and, and really taking off with that? Well, luckily, I was uh, able to play uh, baseball back in college. Baseball has always been my go-to, right? Just huge fan. Went to 20, 30 games a year growing up back in Baltimore. I loved my Orioles. Uh, named one of my sons, Tyler Brooks, in between uh, Ty Cobb and Brooks Robinson, right? Love it. I want him to be a feisty player, but also a very kind, gentle player like Brooks Robinson. So, And literally, he was my best baseball player. Of course he was. Yeah. So, But after I started having boys of my own, I, I wanted to coach, right? I wanted to get in there. And, uh, and I was the kind of coach, or at least I would like to think I was, that... Um, didn't micromanage like my boys, right? I wanted to make the kids better. I wanted the kids to love the game like I did. Yeah. I wanted the passion. And not every kid's like that, you know, at age eight, right? You know, half the kids love it. Half the kids are, you know, picking dandelions. And that's fine, by the way. Um, but I wanted to really get a hold of those kids that wanted to get, be better, right? Wanted to learn the game, learn the nuances of the game. And with my experience, that's what I could do with them. I could really teach them the game. Yeah. Uh Pretty great. I mean, what's the what's the actual age for Little League? Let's see. All my boys probably started at age six. Okay. And they all went through about age 13 or 14. Okay. Uh, two out of three played at high school, and the high schools where we came from in Southern California were big boy high schools. You know, yeah. 
800 to 1,000 per class. Yeah. Right? And if you were playing baseball for the high school, you were creme de la creme, right? You yep. were, uh, I remember on a typical week, we would face, you know, 91, 92 miles an hour every day, right? Yep. And he had a curveball that, you know, slid off at 81, 82. So you had to be up top to your game to play in a Orange County high school baseball. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a great area out there athletically. Um, early on in my podcasting days here, we, we kind of made a lot of jokes and we would always, um, we try, you know, the big cancel culture in the world, right? And our big thing was, um, if we could cancel anything, it was like the Jerko Little League parents, right? And you see all these videos of them. And I think Jerko is a, a polite way to put it. Um, but I, especially in a marketplace like California, I'm sure that you've had millions of experiences like that. We, I called them, uh, you know, helicopter parents, right? They would just hover and hover and hover and they wouldn't let the kid breathe at all. And, you know, a lot of those are the kids that we lost and we lost out of the game because their parents put so damn much pressure on them. Um, and I was the opposite. Now, was I intense as a coach? I think people would say, yeah, you were intense as a coach. But, but more so during the game in between the lines, not with the kids individually. It doesn't do any good to yell at a 8- or 9- or 10-year-old kid. They don't respond like that, right? right. You need to coach them with, uh, with positive, and you need to show them what to do. Right. And then reinforce, reinforce, reinforce. Um, so I was that guy that was, no, come here. Let, let me help you through this, right? Do this, do that. And then the parents would yell at him during the game and reverse half the stuff I taught, right? And that's, yeah. So that was frustrating. But, hey, that's their parenting style, and that's the way it is. No, it, it's, uh, it's extremely wild to see that stuff. Uh, and I'm glad you said it because that is one of the biggest things that I've seen is how many kids you lose to the game when you make – sports is supposed to be fun, especially at that early time, right? And then somebody makes it not fun. It's like, well, why would I want to do this anymore? And it's, it's sad to me because I feel like we've – you know, probably lost some really good athletes or people that had some really good callings towards those sports that never even gave it a shot. Now, in that uh, California area, um, were you coaching teams that, like, had the possibility to go, like, to the actual Little League World Series? Uh, yeah, that would be the All-Stars. So if you were in Mission Viejo Little League, right, at the end of the year, you'd have an all-star tournament, and then you'd start playing other cities. Okay. Right? So Tustin could play, Mission Viejo, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I was able to coach maybe six or seven of those teams. Okay. Um, we got as far as uh, we had to win a two out of three tournament to go to San Bernardino, which is the stepping stone to go there. And we won the first game. We lost the second game. We took the third game into extra innings and lost on a walk-off home run. Oof. So I was, you know, maybe eight feet away, had the guy caught it, right, from going on to uh, the San Bernardino. And uh, the team that beat us won the whole thing that year. Okay. Which was Ocean View Little League. This is back in 2010 or whatever the year. But, yeah. Yeah, that team actually won the whole thing. And another year I lost to a team out of San Diego. Uh, I forget their name, but they won. Was it Chula Vista? It was Chula Vista Little League. You're exactly right. uh, They beat us, and they went the whole way, too. Yeah, so when I was playing college football at Dakota Wesleyan in Mitchell, South Dakota, we had a bunch of kids from Chula Vista. And I remember when their Little League team was was going on, and they were like, yeah, those kids are like legends out there. And they should be. They were very, very good. Yeah, it's just incredible uh, to see that. And I I think it's kind of a – 
I don't know, a, a different world, but it, such a neat experience for a lot of those kids. And I'm sure in places like California, where I don't think like the Midwest qualifier, right? Where, you know, where South Dakota, Iowa, North Dakota, they're probably not as intense, you know, where I'm from as they are in those areas. Um, has any of the kids, I mean, obviously some great relationships bonded through those times I'm sure for you um, what was it like to see some of those kids go on and succeed then after you just as a, as a coach coach to coach you know I coach high school football here so you know from that level to see them succeed there's probably a lot of pride in that as well so I've had a couple of players go on to play in college for sure um, I don't think any of them are sitting in the major league dugouts right now but I will tell you Bennett that I just one of my football players I coached was in a Super Bowl Oh really? Just uh, two days ago, and uh, um, he uh, was a was a tight end for me, and that team was uh, was really good, and we actually went all the way to the Pop Warner Championship, which is in Orlando, Florida. Wow! And uh, we lost in the championship game to a team out of Philadelphia, um, but it was uh, it was super fun to coach that kid, and and I have since seen him back a couple times, and it's always like, hey, Coach King, and ironically enough, he ended up playing. Uh, uh, tight end at SMU his last year, and that's where my kid goes to school out of pure. Yeah, and I actually bumped into a bar one time, and he's like, oh, "Coaching? Are you kidding me?" Yeah. I'm like, "What's up?" So that was that was really fun to see that, and and um, you know, was he my kid's best friend? No, he's just a guy I coached. And yeah, I did 11 years of Pop Warner as well, and uh, I mean, I think I think my teams won the Orange County Championship three times, which is like the championship of California. Right. And then you go play teams from Arizona or this and that. So. So a lot of success using the same chemical formula, right? It's not rocket science. You just have to you have to coach them and you have to love them, and that's the way it is. And lots of time, lots of time. Oh yeah, lots of time. I spent so much time on the whether it was the little league fields or throwing batting practice in cages, Um, and then football season. It was all about you know four thirty to seven thirty. Yep. You know four days a week, and then all day Saturday. Yeah, that's. uh, I mean, what. So growing up for me, what is what age is Pop Warner? See, like where I'm from back home, we didn't get to play tackle football till seventh grade, which looking wow. back as a coach, I think it was probably good. I mean, a lot of us went on to do, you know, none of us played in the NFL, but we a lot of guys that I played with played college football. And uh you know, it probably helped us. We were a little bit more mature, right? But we had so many kids, and I'm from a small town of ten thousand people, but we had so many kids go off for football, we just had four teams and we played each other seventh and eighth grade years. So the coaches would draft us and I'm sure that was a fun process for them. Right. And, uh, uh, it's kind of funny to see how the team set up. Cause like my, my seventh grade year were terrible. We couldn't win a game. My eighth grade year undefeated. Right. So it's just kind of funny to watch those guys, but what age group is the pop Warner level even at? I mean, that's a term that everybody's probably familiar with, but most of my listeners have probably never seen pop Warner. Yeah. There's, there's two big, uh, youth football organizations um you know pop warner is the is the little league right the one that has the name brand but there's also junior all-american but uh both all three of my boys started to play um at age eight or nine and that was full tackle yeah and you know at that age they just kind of bounce off each other you know in seventh grade you can start to lay some hits and you can start to apply some leverage typically at age eight nine it's groups of people bumbling rumbling stumbling and falling down but again, that's what that's when you get a hold of them. That's when you find the ones that have passion and have love. And and you know, I always told all three of my boys, just play tackle football for one year. Right. If you don't like it, I, I'll never pressure you. I made them all play soccer for one year because they might have been great soccer players. I don't right. know, right? Right. 
who knows at age eight. Yeah. But I said, I think you'll like football. And I said, that'll be there. I'll help you coach and this and that. And, you know, luckily for me, they all three loved football, tackle football. Two of them went on to, uh, you know, all league. Again, this is Orange County football here. So yeah. this is, uh, yeah, one of them is in the high school hall of fame. I mean, he was that good. I mean, and uh, he could have played, he could have played in college, but they're all like, nah, I said that I'm going to go to college and I'm going to get good grades and join a fraternity. And I'm not going to get yelled at for at 6am for doing wind sprints. Yeah. I get it by the way. Yeah. No. Yeah. Especially as a former college athlete, I'm sure you can relate. What's that like traveling with a bunch of like youth kids at that level? I mean, especially going to play other States. I mean, again, so another thing I'm going to wrap into is, like, there's a lot of Jerko parents, and I can only imagine a youth football. Well, then you have the Friday Night Tykes TV show, right? And that's probably yeah. what everybody sees, and it's like, man, what a joke. Because uh, I don't think that's how it should be. But, what I mean, is that is that Friday Night Tykes, like, some of the stuff you saw out there? No, not really. Not not in the not in Mission Viejo and that type of area of Coda de Casa. There's um, were there crazy parents? You, you bet there were. Sure. But you, we set the expectations so early. In all seriousness, I had an 80-page PowerPoint. I would sit down and do it with the parents before practice even started. Love that. And these are the rules. And, again, I'm not a draconian, you know, you will do, you're not allowed to come to practice. Of course you're allowed to come to practice. I want you to come to practice. I yep. want you to see what I'm teaching you. But you'll never step on the field as a parent. Yep. And you won't chastise your kid after he drops a ball because he's going to drop a lot of balls. You know, let me coach him, right? That's yep. my job. Uh, my unpaid job, right? You're right. But, but my passion. And, uh, and that's, you know, we were always successful. You know, do we win every game? Of course not, you know. Uh, did every kid, you know, love the sport? No, of course not. But, man, we had a, lo a lot of success stories and a lot, of, uh, a, a lot of kids. When I had my health issue, the people that were first into the room and into the hospital were the parents yeah. of my past kids, right? Yeah. I always told people that that's a sign of a good coach. is not someone maybe that has all the wins and losses, but someone whose parents – that you coached three years ago are lining up to say, you know, how's Coach King? I heard Coach King had a health issue, right? What can I do to help? Yep. That's a pretty cool sign. Yeah, absolutely. I was going to save that talk for just a little bit later, but you mentioned it, so um, guests will get into it. Kind of a unique story um, for you, if you'd like to share that personally. I think a lot of people go through a lot of health issues, and to see you persevere and come out the other side, I think is is probably the good news that's worth spreading. So. If you want to share that with me, I'd sure. appreciate it. Sure, I'll tell the story. It's a, it's a pretty incredible one. Um, so uh, 41 years old, it's a typical Wednesday, not a big deal. Uh, I'm a workaholic. I usually start working at 5.15, uh, and I try to get off at 4 o'clock so I can do my coaching if I can. And this morning I woke up. I had a walking cast on from a slightly broken ankle, no big deal. I had cut it off the night before because I was flying, and they frisked me like I was Osama bin Laden. I almost missed my flight, so I cut my cast <laughs> off. Next morning, I wake up, I go downstairs, I get the paper, I walk inside, and I start feeling these incredible chest pains, and I, and I couldn't breathe. And I, I'm 41 years old, I'm in really good shape, and before I could even think about it more, I just collapsed on my kitchen floor, out like a light. It was early, it was like maybe 5.20 in the morning, and nobody's up in the house, and I'm out. And luckily, my dog, I had an old English sheepdog named Charlie, and Charlie was a non-barker. And this dog stood over me and barked like crazy. And my 10-year-old son, my oldest, came down, said, what the hell, what's going on with the dog barking? Picked up the phone, called 911. Well, my wife came down the stairs probably 10 seconds later saying, shut that dog up, what's going on? To see me on the floor, literally turning blue, not breathing. Uh, so she grabbed the phone and 
uh, ambulance came right away. One of the ambulance guys was a paramedic. I had coached his kid in Little League. So he's like, what's going on, Coach King? And he's taking care of my wife. He said, hey, this is okay. It's a Vicodin overreaction. We'll take him out of Mission Hospital. He'll be at work by noon. He's all good. It's Coach King, right? Super. Right. He's all good. So my wife's like, well, I got my kids off to school, right? We had a 10, 8, and a 4. I got no family in California. I'm an East Coast guy. On the way to the hospital, things went down. When I got to the hospital, I went code blue, right? No heart, no heart rhythm, flat line, beep, 10 minutes, flat line. My wife knows none of this because she's at home taking care of the kids. Right. So they brought me back with the paddles and CPR and everything you see on TV, right? That's all real stuff. They brought me back, and then they're like, holy crap, he has a massive blood clot in his lung caused by the cast. And uh, we need to go in there and get that clot out now, or he's not going to make it to, to lunchtime. <laughs> so my wife showed up like an hour and a half later, expecting to take me home, literally. And she was met by uh, the head doctor uh, and a priest. And they said, listen, we just gave him last rites, and uh, this is not going to end well. He was gone for 10 minutes. We have him stabilized, but it, this is probably not going to go the right way. You better start calling family. And she's like, I don't have any family. Call friends. So she called Little League people. She called neighbors, Pop Warner, Little League. People came running. And I went back in for surgery, and uh, I guess it was an hour and a half later. Surgery did not go too well, and I uh, we were on the table, once again, flatlined. Five minutes, seven minutes, beep. Ten minutes, 12 minutes. And finally, the nurse said to the doctor, he's been down 12 minutes. He was already down 10 minutes this morning. Is his brain going to even be left, right? Right. You're going to bring back a 41-year-old male. His wife's going to be even madder because he's going to be a a vegetable for life. So the doctor said, and I only know this because they've told me the story, and I'm I'm out, obviously. We'll give him until 15 minutes, then we'll call time of death. And they're like, I can't believe we lost a young one. I have three boys myself. And and at, uh, at 14 minutes and 42 seconds, all of a sudden, my rhythm came back, and they weren't even beating on me at that point. They kind of were just like taking their gloves off and saying, shh, lost one. And then they called, everybody came running back in, more drugs, more attention, more this and more that. And, and uh, eventually, they came out, and the, the CEO of the hospital, right, CEO of Mission Hospital lives in my neighborhood, and I coached this kid in baseball, and he heard that Coach King was in the hospital. And he's not a doctor. He's, you know, he's a... He's a, uh, I think he's a Penn University of Penn MBA, right? He's a hospital administrator. Right. So he called all the big, big doctors in and said, what can you do for Coach King? They're like, well, <laughs> he's been through the ringer. He, this guy's probably not going to make it. And this one doctor came out and said, listen, we got this machine. We never used it before. It's not legal, but it works on dogs in Europe. It's a hypothermia machine. It cools your body down to 90 degrees, lets your brain completely reset and then you warm the person back up again. Again, this is unapproved technology. My best friend was there. He was a lawyer. My wife was there. The hospital president was there. They said, if we can get some signatures, let's, let's put this guy in the machine. Right. Everybody's like, holy crap. So they did. So I was the first person in Mission Hospital to go through this hypothermia protocol you know, experience, which is not even legal. Um, came out of it. Obviously, look at me today, right? Yeah. I was in a hospital for, uh, for a month, and I was in a coma for a while. Um, and Brian was one of the guys that, you know, spent vigil over me, just watching football games in my room. And I know he was sneaking in beer too, by the way, <laughs> I guarantee you, Brian was sneaking in beer. 
And then one, one night I woke up, and a week later I was out of the hospital, and I had a long recovery ahead of me because I was just, I lost 60 pounds and just all the hospital things, right? Sure. But here I am. I mean, it's, it's all good, right? Hell yeah. Cheers to that. Cheers to that, brother. Yeah. Uh, thank you for sharing that. That's an incredible uh, story. And I think it's even uh, probably going to register with a lot more people because of what just happened in the NFL this last year, right? Like the world yeah. got to see everything that you went through. Um, what personally, what, what mentality, what was the biggest mentality change? I mean, I think it's probably easy for people to say, oh, I never took another day for granted. But <laughs> how do you, how do you actually go about and not take another day for granted? You, you can't, right? You have to, and so many people have asked me, right? Like, uh, you know, what, what did you learn from it? And, you know, what's your experience and how did you change? Right. That's everybody says, how did you change? And I say, you know, what? I went to church twice a year before I died and I go to church twice a year now. So did I find religion? No, I didn't find religion. Right. Um, am I a changed person? I, I don't know. I think I'm the same person I was before. Do I maybe have a, a, a zest or a more love for life? Yeah. Okay, I do. Um, you know, do I take my friends, you know, I, I love my friends, right? Again, I have no family here on the West Coast whatsoever. So my buddies are my buddies, whether they're golf buddies, whether they're neighbor buddies, whether they're co fellow coaches. Right. They're my boys. And uh, so I spend a lot of time with them. And, of course, my family. My family's great. Yeah. No, that's an incredible, incredible story. Um, obviously, I mean, the people, the support system around you, I think that's, you know, the biggest staple. And, and it tells everybody who you are, right? The people that come help you when you're down. So um, that's a kudos to you. What was your recovery time like to get back to living a, nor a normal life? My only real long-term damage was uh, I did lose one of my lungs. One of my lungs got damaged because of the blood clot, so... I only have one lung now, so that means I'm in a constant state of being winded. Sure. Right? There's no marathon running in my future. <laughs> yeah. By the way, I didn't run marathons when I was 41 either, so it's okay. <laughs> um, that was the only big physical change. I'm on blood thinners and some other medicines because of what, what's going on. But but really, it, it took me months, maybe three or four months of uh, a therapy getting back to it. The biggest thing I told my physical therapist uh, was I need to get my right arm all healed up so I can throw batting practice. As a pitcher back in college, right, that was my staple. I was the dad. I was the coach that would throw 300 pitches to yeah. all the dudes, right? And yeah. I could throw, you know, 70% strikes in a row. Right. Um, so that was really important to me. And my, at that time, my kids were young, right, 10, 8, and 4. And I had suffered some damage in my right arm. And I was like, no, you guys got to you guys gotta fix me because I got to throw BP. Right. Uh, and it took me a couple months. And I think come Little League season, you know, which starts about mid-January in SoCal, I was back on the fields ready to go. Awesome. Yeah, so it was cool. Yeah, that's that's really incredible. I appreciate you sharing that with me. I think, you know, uh, I hope that this podcast helped people along the way. And somebody's, you know, always going through something and to just keep pushing and fighting. And that's, that's all you can do, right? Um, so I'm going to kind of switch gears back to where I wanted to kind of, you know, ask you before. So you're a, a sales executive, right? Uh, floor cleaners, I know, right? So, um but also a former college athlete and a coach. And so one of my favorite, favorite things is, is, is just building cultures around people. Right. And what's that, what's, what's that uh, connection of sport and especially sales been like for you personally? You know, when I was probably 25 years old, I was working for a company right out of college called deluxe check printers, right? They were a printing company located in Minnesota where I think you're from. Yep. They're from St. Paul. 
and we printed about 10,000 books of checks every day. And I was a young executive on a climb, and my boss set me up to Philadelphia to go listen to uh, Wooden, right, the UCLA basketball coach, yeah. the famous, right? Yep. And he had his pyramid of success, which we've all heard of before. But listening to him do that live with just 10 of us in a room, unbelievable. Sure. And, and I, that was my biggest takeaway of how I was going to manage people and be successful. And the biggest uh, you know, pyramid block was trust. So my deal was, you know, trust your people, trust your employees, trust your kids to do the right thing, right? Um, and that's the way I, I taught my, my team, whether it's teams of 10 or teams of 100. Um, I run a very large team right now. We do almost $200 million in volume, right? It's a big company. Yeah. Um, but you, my people would tell you, Mr. King is not the guy looking over my shoulder. He's not the guy correcting me if I go out of the bounds. I praise my employees to think outside the box. I praise my employees to to try and fail a little bit. Yeah. So it's okay. We, we make floor cleaning machines. Right. It'll, probably, it'll probably be okay if one of them slips a little bit here or there, right? So, but, but that's how you grow as a person. That's how you grow as a player. That's how you grow as an employee. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I, I enjoy hearing that, uh, letting people be themselves and, and growing and, and changing. Um, how Best way to handle rejection in your eyes or maybe uh, objections, not necessarily regret, uh, rejection, but objections. I think uh, sales world, especially, you're going to hear it a ton, right? million different objections. We could go through them all, but um, everybody's got a different way to attack them, and that's what I enjoy learning. You know, I would think that my uh, the way I would overcome is uh, is you, you just can't accept the first time they say no because they probably don't mean it. Right. They very possibly mean it to get you the hell out of the office or to change the subject or something else. But sometimes it's okay to say, okay, I got you. I'm probably not clear with what I want to do. Let's let me rephrase my offer. Boom. How, does this direction over here sound okay? We have an offering that looks like this, not like this. Would that be, you know, more suitable to your needs, right? You know, sometimes the eventual answer is no. Right. But often the eventual answer is, okay, well, that's a little bit more my sweet spot, right? You know, let me think about it or whatever. But I just, I, I don't let my team take no very well, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, if your products are really good and if you're convicted in them and convicted in your company being really good, and my company is really good, then, then, this guy has a need and we need to fill his need, right? Right. Are we perfect? No, of course not. But we're better than the other guys out there and we just got to find the way to fit into his need. Yeah. Um, what's the one way that you've seen um, young people, especially in that sales world, kind of fail and you wish that you could, I mean, I know a failure is good. Failures equals growth, right? Like that's good. But what there's probably one common mistake you see in young people a lot in your, your eyes that you're like, man, I wish we could cut out that step of failure. Yeah. A lot of the, a lot of the young people that I'm seeing right now. And again, I have three young people myself, right? Two of them who are just into the, the working world, right? It's, it's being really serious about their job. Right. And that doesn't mean that you can't crack jokes. You got to have fun at work, but you have to be serious and you have to make sure that people around you and that your boss understands that you're serious, you're into the game and you have to put in the time. Yeah. I know a lot of people nowadays, you know, they spend, you know, 20 percent of the day on their phone or God forbid they're working at home. Who the hell knows what they're doing? Right. Right. And I think I think what my boys got out of me and what I want to see out of a 24 year old guy I'm hiring, because I hire a lot of young guys is show me the work ethic, baby. I mean, I. You don't have to work 70 hours a week. I don't, I don't work 70 hours a week, but you can't put in 6.5 and call it a day. Right. And a lot of people want to do that, right? They, 
what do you owe me, right? You know, you guys owe me a paycheck and healthcare and this and that. No, we don't, right? You give me a hard day's work and you got the moons ahead of you, yep. right? Because we'll give you that. But you, you got to show me the effort. You got to show me the passion for it. And, and then I become your best ally, right? Then, I, then I'm your man in your corner and I'll help you get places. Right. I think one thing that people are constantly trying to find, and it's one thing that I've really enjoyed about doing this, is meeting a ton of people that have taken passions and turned them into careers, right? Like I have some friends here locally now. They literally opened a sports card shop up down the road where they just open cards on the internet now. They quit their jobs and that's what they do. And they just did a bunch of stuff for the NFL at the Super Bowl and they're killing it. And that's awesome, right? Mm -hmm. And I got friends out here that are stand-up comedians and it's fun to see people go after those passions. Um, I'm assuming floor cleaners was never your passion, no, it wasn't. And I've only been there uh, 13 years. But, but you know, before that, uh, I was running a large company that sold something equally as sexy, uh, overhead garage doors. Oh, even better. So there you go, right? <laughs> so to me, it's not the product, right? It's not the gidget. It's the process. Sure. It's the passion in the process. How do you, you know, how do you set your day up? How do you set your week up, right? How do you treat your fellow employees? It's all about the passion of just getting the job done. I don't care what I'm selling, quite honestly. It really doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, now, that being said, if I won the $60 million lottery, would I still say stay a salesperson selling vacuum cleaners? Uh, of course not. But you know what I probably would do? I probably would be go, go be a coach. Yeah. I would, prob- I would either do high school football or high school baseball, and I, I love them both dearly. Yeah. Um, and that's what I would do. Yeah. No, that's – I mean, it's always good to have that passion, right, that drives you, and you got to do that for a long time, and you made a lot of impacts, and – I think that's my favorite thing about sales and coaching is that you still get to connect a lot of people and that's always fun. And, and I'm a good talker. I like to meet people. So, um, that's, that's why, why I enjoy it. Um, as you've gone through, you've obviously done business in different places. And on uh, the episode that actually just came out today when you and I were recording this, I had on Dan Valentine and Dan is a local here. Uh, he's big. He's bought a, Started up a bunch of different businesses, sold them off. And he's right now got a car dealership, a tow truck company, starting a brewery, right? The guy's kind of all over the place. And uh, Dan touched on something, and it was really something I didn't learn till I lived out here was, you know, firing a customer. And I didn't really get that until I worked in Phoenix uh, for Porter's company there because where I'm from, customer's always right, right? Like, grew up in the Midwest, customer's always right. My dad owned a restaurant, customer's always right. And that, that's not how it always is. So that was probably the biggest thing that kind of like, holy smokes, flipped the switch in me. Um, what's something that you've seen from where you started doing sales to where you're at now on the West Coast and really has kind of changed your perspective? I am a big uh, believer that the customer is not always right. My belief is that the customer is always worthy of our 100% respect, Yeah. right? The customer is worthy of our respect, but if he's being a jerk, if he's being unreasonable, then he is out. Right. I don't know if I like the word fire a customer, but I like the word of let's not do business together and, and, and agree and shake hands on it, right? Um, to me, when I first, I transferred out here in 2000 from Baltimore, I'm, I'm an East Coast guy, um, and I took over a pretty large company and there was salespeople and nobody worked. I would go into the sales guy the first day to drive around them and they all had golf clubs in the back and golf balls and tees everywhere. And I'm like, where's your sales literature? Where's your demos? Where's your samples? Oh yeah, I got, I got those. But, but, uh, I'm like, no, you got golf clubs in your back. Right. And, 
And uh, I think I had a turnover probably 90% of that office. Really? Because they just they had no work ethic. And, uh, you know, their afternoon was 2 o'clock at the beach. Right. Hey, I, I love going to the beach, right? But we got a job to do, right? Yeah. So I think that's a big thing. Again, you don't have to work 15-hour days. That's not the way the world works. But you got to work hard, right? Yeah. You got to do your deal. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I find it... Not funny, but it, it's true. It just comes down to to work hard. And then you obviously touched on trust, right? Be somebody that people can trust. Um, as you've built these cultures and, you, and you've gone through turnover places, what's the biggest thing you look for in making sure you're finding somebody that's going to align with that? I think, I mean, especially for myself, I just went through a bunch of football interviews. And trust me, to get a high school job out here was kind of wild. I'd never seen stuff like this. But there's a lot of people out here that, can put stuff on paper and make it sound really good, right? And they can probably do that for any job, but especially in the game of football, I can pull this from here, this from here, right? And give it to you, say, oh, this is what I believe in, this is what I do, and then it gets time to teach it. So uh, for you to siphon through all that BS, what what are you looking for when you're going through that? You know, it's it's difficult because anybody can put on a good face for an hour for the interview, right? Mm Mm-hmm. But, but I can't afford to miss with the interviews, right? Everybody misses once in a while. But if I hire 10 guys, nine of them have to be winners. Right. And if six of them are winners, I'm a loser because that, will, that turnover cost will kill me, right? So I have an hour. And so we'll, we'll, have a, we'll have a series of interviews, right? I'll call up, interview the person, and I'll, I'll turn them over to not only one of my equals, but I'll turn them over to one of my sales guys. Say, do me a favor and interview this person from California. She's going to be a level ahead of you working for another team. But just ask her a lot of questions, right? And we always, I use the culture word all the time. I probably use it more than sales results. I probably use it more than what percentage of sales did you achieve, yeah. right? I want to know where they came from. Why, did, why are you leaving? And you better have a good answer for why you're leaving. And by the way, people leave jobs all the time. That's okay. But what I don't want to hear is, you know, my boss was a jerk. You know, they had meetings at three o'clock on Fridays and I hated that, right? Well, that's just part, that's part of a company culture, right? And I don't have meetings on Fridays for my team because I wouldn't do that. Right. Going back to the trust factor. Yeah. I trust that they're going to put in their time and, um, but that's a big deal. So I try to interview as extensively as I can from the side, from the top, from the bottom to try to get at that. Is this person going to fit my culture? Because that's probably where they're going to miss. If they miss, it's probably going to be a, well, you never told me we had to do this. Right. You mean like work? Yeah. Or, you know, be customer facing and enjoy this and, uh, you know, a CRM program, right? Salesforce. Yeah. You, I have to use Salesforce? Well, how are we going to tra- How are we going to measure results? How are we going to track your success? Well, my old company, they didn't do that. Well, that's probably not a very good company, right? So, but you have to interview for all that. And it's, it's easy for me to say that. It's a little harder to do it. Yeah, for sure. Uh, especially somebody that now has you know two sons and a third jumping into that, that realm. And you've seen that, that uh, generation of people. And you've obviously been in the workplace for a long time. I think a lot of people are really easy to say, like, there's a lot of differences in my generation to this generation. Do you believe in that? And you, I mean, you just, you kind of, you know, you kind of said like, oh, you know, I went to California and these guys were ready to golf at two o'clock. So it's not like that's a, a young per. I mean, that's probably just a young person thing in general, right? Doesn't matter what generation, but what's some of the similarities or the differences you've seen in the, in the business world of, of younger people, you know, from when you started to, to now? Yeah. You know, if you're talking about Gen X versus Gen Z and that type of stuff and, there's, there's tremendous differences. And then you had the COVID right in the middle of all of this that created another subculture, right, 
of these people that I, I don't want to go to the office ever. Right. Well, but but is that reasonable? Yeah. Can you do stuff at home? Of course you can. I can type up a million emails from my house. Right. But is that the right place for me? Do I affect customers best that way? Probably not. Um, so again, I just ingrained it into my sons that uh, you know this this is the way you need to do it. You're going to be your own person. You're going to strike your own path, right? I did not give any of my kids jobs ever. Yeah. You know, I always said you'll strike out and find your own way, but I'm here for your advice, right? I'm here to be your coach. I'm here to give you good, sound advice. My boys, when they call me, they call me to talk about a project they won, a project they lost. You know, Dad, how would you price this, right? I don't know their products. Right. They both sell high-tech software, right? That's the way outside. I told you, I'm a garage door guy. <laughs> I'm a vacuum cleaner guy. But again, the, pr the pricing is really about the process. It's about yeah. the process of how you approach it. You know, what are the customer expectations? And those are asking the great questions. And I think that's what I've trained in my, you know, my kids uh, whether it's through coaching or through, you know, my boys growing up is, you know, you got to surround yourself with the customer, you know, customer centricity and how you're going to do it. And you know, forget about this Gen Z stuff. And, I, you know, my boys, you know, you, no jumping jobs, no six month jobs, no eight month jobs. Right. And that's the worst thing I look for in a resume. Right. And they're all over the place. Right. You know, a guy at 27 has five jobs. Are you kidding me? Yeah. Then there might be a great reason for that, but there probably isn't. Yeah. It's probably a non-cultural fit. Yeah, for sure. No, it's it's just interesting for me to hear um, all those things coming from a different market and then just, you know, continuing to network for myself. And, you know, somebody listening to this girl, you know, hopefully is going through some stuff where this is pertinent to their life and their situations. And I think it's funny you touched on the remote thing. I saw an article today on, uh, I don't know, one. Of, I think it was Fox Business, to be honest, and it was the uh, state of New York is projected to lose $12 billion because of remote work. And that is, uh, I think that's going to have a huge shake. And I think I've always kind of felt rec more than recently, but I mean, before COVID, I kind of, you could see where a lot of jobs were kind of heading that way, where it's like wherever you can open your computer, you can work. And I think in a lot of realms, that's great. Uh, one of my good friends, he was just out here for the open, and he does CRM work, but he's fully remote. So he just brought his whole setup, and he worked till, you know, 4 o'clock our time every day, and then it was time to go. But it's just an interesting thing to see and keep tabs on. What's that? What's been the biggest change in your world in the floor cleaning industry, or like just in general in, in your eyes of business um, since COVID? Well, when it first hit, right, and we really didn't understand a lot about it. It was all about you know disinfectant, cleanliness. Yeah. Um, schools, uh, airports, shopping malls. Those are all big target customers for me. Wherever you see a huge expanse area of Florida floor right they need to be cleaned whether, yeah. it's, whether it's carpet or whether it's tile like an airport um a lot of government money came out came out through the cares act i mean billions came out through the cares act and uh schools wanted new playground equipment new roofs and new floor cleaning machines yeah and so i was eager to get in line for to get them some money but we still had to sell them because there's you know there's four other competitors that sell the same thing i sell right so we all have to fight each other to get it but Again, that's what goes back to our co our company needs to outwork the other company. Yeah, we need to be better. Quite honestly, typically a floor cleaner is a floor cleaner in a different color, maybe. Yeah. Uh, but my guy selling it and my guy that supports it's probably going to be better. And that's my stand that I let you know I, I put my leg on. Yeah, for sure. That's something that I've learned the most of being in this marketplace of a metro, a major metro, right? Uh, whether it's packaging or welding supplies. Uh, back home, I worked for Fastenal. It was us and another guy. 
And we had everything, right? We were fast enough so we could bully. We could get down dirty on price. We were going to win. Um, out here, it's 1,000% service, personality, how you treat people, which is kind of crazy because it, it, at some points in the business world, when you get to the bigger markets, it feels the opposite way. I mean, I feel like people are a little – maybe just run into more rude people is how <laughs> I would say it, right? But um, it's just kind of crazy that there's either you're going to run across the customer that loves to shop online or the guy that oh it means a lot that you show up and talk to me right so i think those are great points uh as i get to wind it down here i want to be very conscious of your time and i appreciate all the time you've given me um what's one piece of advice you would give to a young person um going through something or looking to make a big leap or take you know take a change in their life what's some perspective or some advice you'd give them I think that you have to be genuine, right? You can't pretend to be this because they're going to root it out anyways and let you go, right? So you might as well put your best foot forward, but let it be your most genuine foot. You have to follow up. You have to be aggressive, but not silly aggressive. Like, you know, like the old days, like a used car sales guy. You just have to be an aggressive person, you know, and a a huge handshake, by the way, still goes a, a mile. Yeah. You know, and some people, again, some of these younger Gen Zers and, yeah, yo, what's up, right? No, not yo, what's up, right? (laughs) I want a a big handshake and maybe I'm old fashioned, but um, all three of my boys went through fraternities and all three of these boys through their fraternities grew up because the fraternity said, you will not act like this. You'll act like a young man, right? Because you're all going to have to get a job. They're all business. They're all business students in college. And and that's how you're going to put your foot forward. And I, I remember my first one came home from college. He went to here at ASU and... He came home and all of a sudden he's wearing like a jacket, like a suit jacket around. I'm like, what the hell are you doing? He's like, dad, this is what we did. And then, you know, it, well, it was a sick up here at ASU and, you know, we had to wear this a class for a whole, you know, 30 days and this and that. And I kind of, it's comfortable on me now. Right. Plus I look, I look better. Right. Don't I? I'm like, you sure do. Yeah. It beats the tank top you were back in high school. Yeah. yeah. They grow, they change. And, but that's what, that's, what's going to make him successful. Right. He, he's figured out what it takes and now it's not a facade. It's, it's his real him, right? Yep. He's just a, a mature young man now, and sons number two and number three are right there. So it's fun. Fun yeah, for dad. Absolutely. Well, I appreciate you being on, sharing your stories with me today. I had an absolute blast getting to know you. Uh, shout out Brian Porter for hooking us up. Yes. Um, so uh, thank you, everyone, for taking time out of your life to listen again today. Please like, comment, share, subscribe, unsubscribe, rate five stars. Be good, everybody. Only good.